At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. As their God, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Before I moved here to New Jersey some two months ago, my family experienced one of the first crises that we, uh, we had to walk our children through, and it was the death of a beloved pet. Now, I grew up myself a dog man, and I, I would have said that dogs are superior to any other animal on the face of the planet, but until I met Eva and Poppy, Eva and Poppy came to us from a local shelter who, she actually overheard my kids asking my wife while they were walking past our house on the sidewalk about wanting a pet. And she had just taken in two brand new baby kittens from a feral mother who I think had died. And so she hears these children and she rushes up to my, my wife and says, do you want two cats? And so I get the phone call. She's like, can we have two cats? Okay. So out come these two very timid little creatures. And at first it was rocky, and I hated them sorely because they peed on everything, absolutely everything. And, you know, cat urine is of a particularly foul way, and we couldn't get it out of anything. So finally we made them indoor-outdoor cats, and that's when they became amazing. They'd bring us presents, and by presents I mean bats and birds and they wouldn't bring them, sometimes they'd bring them to us dead, but most of the time they'd bring them to us and be like, here you go, and Alf, Alf would fly the bird through our house. And some, we got bunnies, we got chipmunks and squirrels, rats, all the good things. Just the other day, if you follow my wife's Instagram, which this is not a plug for her, um, you could find that the other day, Poppy brought into our home an owl, a living, breathing baby owl. And, you know, I, it's at two in the morning, and all of a sudden we hear, throughout the house, and I turn on the light, and I was struck with childlike wonder. It's not a bird, it's an owl. And, like, I had to get the cat out so she wouldn't try to kill it, but I was like, we have an owl in the house. And then, you know, you start wondering, can I keep it? Is it okay to keep an owl in this, in this state? Well, a while back, when we go on trips... The cats, indoor, outdoor as they were, they'd sometimes realize that we weren't home. We'd make sure they were taken care of and had food. But they'd journey, and it would typically take them a day or two to return home after we'd gotten back. But then one day, Eva, who was my favorite, she would, as I was falling asleep, she'd get right on my chest and do that thing cats do right there. She'd fall asleep on my chest, 
She didn't return. So we called the animal shelter and we found out that she had been hit by a car and found. So we buried her and my kids are sobbing. I'm sobbing. And I remember as we placed her into the ground, I realized this is not how it's supposed to be. I've been to many funerals in my life and pastoral ministry. You, get, you go to those. Each time something dies, I'm stricken to the core. This is not the way God intended the universe to be. Our sermon today is to get across this massive point. Our present sufferings will give way to future glory. They will stop. And on the other side of suffering is the glory that we have with God. So let's take a look at our passage today. But first, we have to take a look at context. Context, context, context. It was drilled into me as a kid, and so I will drill it into you. Context, context, context. In order for us to understand the beauty of what Paul wants us to see, we have to see what he's brought us to up to this point. The first one, found in verses 8, 1 through 8, is this. All who are in Christ are set free from any and all condemnation. Paul says in verses 1 through 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul shows us that Christ has done the impossibly awesome thing. Not only has he set us free from the condemnation of sin, but he has also set us free from the burden of the law. In Christ, we now are considered righteous. In Christendom, there's this stupid phrase that goes about, and you've probably heard it, oh, I'm just a saved sinner. Oh, I'm just a, a glorified saint who's just super messy. Hush! It's just nonsense. It's garbage. It's baloney. Malarkey. Let it run from it. You are not seen through the sin that you commit anymore. God understands it. He knows that you're in the presence of sin. He knows that it still has appeal in our life. But God looks at you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't walk anywhere with any condemnation anymore. You have been set free. Paul wants you to know that all who are in Christ are set free from any and all condemnation. At all. At all. Both now and forevermore. The second thing he wants you to see is that those who are in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which, which joins us to the resurrection, the same resurrection as Jesus. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, verse 9, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So you, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, are considered in Christ. You've been set free from the law. You've been set free from sin. But now the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You are literally walking around as a temple of God. Now, I need to say this right now. Every time someone's like, oh, my body is a temple, they typically have to do with like kale and whether or not you're eating salads or whether or not you're doing P90X enough times throughout the week. That's not what it's about. Eat kale all you want to. I don't care. Deep fry it in gravy if you'd like. But that's not what being a temple is about. This is not something we can co-opt to tell people they should be more healthy. This is a living continuation of the Old Testament story that God, the God of the universe who came and lived inside, dwelt inside the tabernacle, has now tabernacled inside of you so that everywhere you go, the presence of God goes to. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
And your physical bodies, as a result, have been given the same promise that we see in Jesus. And Jesus, we know the story. Hopefully, if you, if you don't, here it is. Jesus came, lived a perfect, righteous, and sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. But did he stay dead? No. After three days, he was raised from the dead to the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same physical resurrection that happened to him will happen physically to you. The body that you have, no matter what it's experienced, will live with you into eternity because of the precious promises given to you. You'll notice that I am a a man of great sorrow today. Yesterday was not my favorite day in the universe because I went to the Wright Bull's house to pick up a bowl I'd let them borrow and uh, missed the front step walking out and smash, put my hand right through that bowl. I thought Pyrexes were bulletproof, you know, the kind of thing you could hold up in case a rocket's going to hit you. They are not. I can fully attest to it. So I'm there yesterday, and I, I have a very low pain tolerance, basically the, the human equivalent of a wuss. And so I'm, I'm having, trying my hardest to, like, do I clean up the glass? Do I leave a war zone in front of their house? I'm bleeding out. I'm probably going to die. What do I do right now? So I did the right thing. I left the, the right balls to clean up the mess I had made, and I went to the doctor. This is all true. So I'm sitting there. And the doctor says, so what happened? And I didn't have anything colorful to tell him, like a fight with a bear, you know, jumped out of a moving car, got hit by a bull. It's the most unmanly moment of my life as the doctor was like, well, you need a better story, but you're also going to have a scar for the rest of your life. Now, I knew I was going to preach this today. And it was amazing to look down at my hand, which has plenty of scars from various things I've experienced in my life, to suddenly realize I'm going to have that scar in eternity too. Now, it might be lessened. It might be more cool with a better story. But this body will enter into eternity with me. And this is part of my story now. And the story won't end just because eternity began. We carry it forward into that. It's absolutely incredible to me how, much, how important this is. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus is for you and for me the promise that the bodies that experience pain, that pain has an ending date. I, there are people in, in this congregation who, whether themselves or in their, in their family, know somebody who is experiencing constant pain, whether it's uh, from an autoimmune disease of some sort or whatever else. Do you realize that the bodies that you've been given will be resurrected into glory, and you will be set free. But this temple that you are and have become is an eternally lasting one. What a beautiful, beautiful reality Christ has given us. No matter how sick you get, sickness won't actually win. That's part of our Christian hope. So after telling us about this, he then says this, all who are in Christ are sons and daughters via adoption. Again, I can't stand it. People are like, oh, you're a safe sinner. I'm just a, a masterwork of God who just is crummy all the time. No, dear friend, you are a child of the king. When the Lord God looks at you, he sees someone he loves. He sees someone he knows everything about. He's not under no preconceptions of the idiocy of our stories. 
He's, he's not afraid to call us his own, but instead, he's also made us heirs, adopted children of God. And verse 16 of chapter 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And that word suffering is what connects us to our passage today. Because we are children of God does not mean that suddenly you're the golden boy who escapes anything this world has to offer. In fact, actually, suffering is told openly by Paul. You're going to suffer in this life to greater or lesser degrees till the end. But you're now suffering with him. And you will be glorified with him. Hope doesn't remove our sufferings. It tells us that there's something beyond it. Something true and lasting and steadfast and good. The last word of your life will not be the cruel, cold randomness of suffering. It will be glory and grace. If you are in Christ, which means you are a child of the king, then evil doesn't have the last word on you. So this is the context. And so Paul wants us now to see that creation groans in hope for its full restoration. Let's read Romans 8, verses 18 to 25 together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Creation groans in hope for its full restoration. When Jeremy gave me this to preach, I looked at him and I was like, ha, 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 I have the best part of the chapter to preach. And I mocked him and I gave him a scallywag response. But this is literally one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. And the things that it talks about is one of the most exciting things. One of those places that always gets beneath my skin and gets me feeling that there's actually hope in this eternity. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's fine and good. That sounds like an excellent continuation. But Paul doesn't want to stop there. He takes our attention from ourselves and all these things that he's amassed about what we are now in Christ. And he says, look around you. Your redemption is connected to that too. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealings of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. During your life, you will experience pain and suffering of all kinds. But it cannot possibly be compared to what lies ahead, the goodness of what lies ahead. 
there's a person in this room who runs marathons. I don't understand it. Marathons, like that's for crazy people, right? But the glory of having run through the suffering of a marathon gets you through to the other side. Well, what kind of hope exp- uh, is, waits for us? Is it just us? Should you just be excited about you having a jolly old time with Jesus up in the, in the skies? No. He moves our attention away from our personal experience and puts us towards the earth in which we live. It's not just you that awaits resurrection. It's the good earth that God has given us too. It's creation. Verse 20. The creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and attain the, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What story does the Bible tell? It is, after all, at the end of the day, a large story of how God sa- makes and saves the world. The Bible tells us at the very beginning how God made the world, but then it tells us how the world fell into chaos and curse when the people God had made rebelled against him. So you see in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to husband, but he shall rule over you. Verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have, not eaten, the tr- and have eaten of the tree I command you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Did you see that? Adam doesn't receive the direct curse. Neither does Eve. Eve's offspring do. Adam, who was supposed to toil and build and and subdue the earth to the glory of God, now has a broken relationship with the very earth that was supposed to give him life. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. That is the moment that creation was subjected to futility and placed in the same bondage as humanity was placed. Verse 20 of chapter 8 in Romans says, Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It's the innocent bystander here that gets brought in and gets swept into the craziness that humanity brought into it. But God was still in charge. And despite the awfulness that humanity brought into our world, God can co-opt that with hope. Creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and chain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When the the early world of Adam and Eve was full and free, full of joy and delight, they were active in active community with God. They were, the, they were stewards of God's creation, meant to do good everywhere they walked and everything they saw. And, but instead of planting and harvesting love and light, they planted and harvested darkness and death because of the rebellion of sin. And this is what happened. The creator lost his perfect unified relationship with his image bearers, us. Our creator lost his perfect relationship with the world, 
we lost our perfect relationship with the world as God's image bearers. And then a further tear down from that, man and wife lost the perfect unity with each other. Do you wonder why you fight with your spouse? It's because of your sin. Do you wonder why you're in a relationship that should feel free, but instead feels lost and unfixable? It's because of sin. And it's been there since the first. Christians have long called this verse that we saw earlier, I will put enmity between you and your woman, between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and he shall bruise his heel. This is what scholars call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. The promise that in the muck and mire of the terror of our cosmically corrupted sinful life, that there's coming a day in which Eve will bear a child that will crush the serpent's head. It's the first promise of Scripture. It's the first moment we realize that from the darkness, God will shine a bright light. So as you watch the story continue, Adam, I mean, God calls Adam's children to himself, and then he calls Abraham to himself. And what happens as you watch the children of Israel develop is that one of the most amazing things, if you've read the Old Testament law, which I highly encourage you to do, the first five books of the Old Testament, you find that God, if Israel were to com completely commit to faithfulness to God and to follow him all their days, even amidst their the infirmities, the earth that they live on would be blessed. It's absolutely astounding. Go read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and watch how every time that God speaks about their faithfulness, who gets blessed? Not just the nations, not just themselves, but the soil on which they walk will actually experience redemption. It's a kind of reversal of the fall that in that place where God walks with his people, that the ground beneath their feet would experience the blessings for which it was always designed. And through this blessing, not just in the righteousness performed, but also in the unbelievable blessing of the, the earth and the land, all the nations would look and say, what in the heck is happening in Israel? How do we, all of us, struggle to get the earth to work for us? But they have blessing everywhere they turn. And they would then be a light to the nations. But ultimately, the story comes to Jesus. The story comes to Jesus because he is, according to the Bible, the one promised to Eve, the one who would crush the serpent's head. And when he encountered death in his own ministry, he says about Lazarus, his, his dead friend, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Asking Martha, Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha. His resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Son of God. And according to 1 Corinthians, is the hinge, the linchpin upon which we believe it or don't. If Jesus was never resurrected from the dead, then all of this is baloney. You might as well just leave. Let's burn the place down. It doesn't matter anymore. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have hope. A genuine, steadfast, and secure hope. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, death was dealt a deadly blow. 1 Corinthians says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. All shall be made alive. We'll come back to that. But each to his own order. Christ, the first fruits. And then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain to see that he, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, that is a complicated passage, especially toward the end, but let me get to the, the very heart of it, which is what we see in Romans chapter 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation was set in bondage. It groans and waits for the same thing your heart longs for as well, the day, the day when God will make all things finally new. But did you realize that? Do you realize that? Your own gospel redemption story is tied up in the world that around us is now covered with beautiful snow. The, the, the place you drove through, the, the, all of the land around, the, the animals that hide in the forests, your redemption is tied up with theirs. Said another way, when all of God's people are restored to perfect wholeness, the land that is our home will be restored too. Christians... I believe very strongly, should be on the foremost of creation care. It pains me to see how many Christians have this, it'll all burn response, as if creation is itself something that God has thrown away and is expendable. Creation sings the glory of God. All the universe shouts his praise. When Jesus said, yeah, you want them to stop singing? Let the rocks sing in their place. Why? Because the rocks sing. That's the amazing thing about his creation is that all of it was made to reflect his handiwork. And consider this. We don't even have a clue what creation was supposed to fully be like because when we plant something, come a certain season, it dies. That was not the way it was supposed to be. Flowers were not supposed to die. They were supposed to continually bloom in projection of the glory of the God who made them. Creation matters to the King of Kings. And one day, one day, when God makes your world right, He'll make this world right too. I am so grateful for that. I hate hearing more and more about the extinction of an animal, over pollution, how American Christians and Christians across the world are actively lobbying against things that could care for our earth. Why? It was going to burn. No, it's going to be made brand new. Just as your physical body will be restored, so will this physical earth be restored. 
Let us be people who are known for caring for the good home that we live in. But that's not the end of our redemption. It's not just the earth that will be redeemed. It's God's people who groan for their eternal redemption as well. Just as creation groans to God and asks it to be set free from sin, so do we. Romans 8, 23 says, And not only creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I cannot wait for the redemption of our bodies. Yesterday when I was at the hospital, I watched an elderly man who in his medical crisis had lost all sense of himself. This man who was probably strong and brilliant in his day because of age and the deterioration of our world could not find his way. They were trying to save his life and he was actively trying to hit them and hurt them. That's not the way it was supposed to be. I remember the very first time as a pastor, I watched someone have a long, slow death where you see the grim reaper coming, but you can't do anything about it. And all you can do is pray. And I got to the point where I, I started praying that God would just hurry it all up. Because how much more suffering can a body take? That's not the way it was supposed to be. I remember the very first time I watched my kids learn that their friends and the world would disappoint them. And you, they come home from school and they experience what we've all experienced, the rejection of friends, mockery, and suddenly the crestfallen nature that the world isn't necessarily safe and always good. And I want to reach in as a father and I want to lift him from it and say, don't worry, dad will protect you. Don't worry, I will, I will shield you from this, but I can't. I can't do it because the world that they live in is going to hurt them. And it will happen again. I remember the very first time I were, when working in ministry, I encountered a person who was so broken that for the first time in my life, I wondered, is there any healing for her in this earth? Is there anything this side of eternity that can fix this? So I wait for it. I wait for it because I look around and I see men and women raging against each other, society raging against itself, societies raging against other societies. I, f I wait for it because this was not the way it was supposed to be. The Christian hope is not just heaven and escapism. It's that all things, all things will be made brand new. No more suffering, no more groaning in our heart, no more disappointment and disillusionment, no more of that loneliness that just can get in and stay in between friendships. No more breathing in pollution and watching the world decay. No more finding out that yet again we've ruined something. And I think about when Cain killed Abel. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 4. God, the Lord, saying, speaking to Cabel, I'm at Cable. Cain said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
How many times has creation, which was meant just to create life, had to resorb what we have broken? Can you think about this? How creation will rejoice that it no longer has to be the resting place of the thousands and millions and billions of people who have laid down in it. Think about how beautiful that is. From day one, such a visceral thing that the creation itself is having been forced to take in what it wasn't supposed to do. But now there's coming a day in which creation will have that lifted, and that will be lifted from us too. What a hope! That is absolutely amazing. What a bondage to be set free from, and what a joy that we can look as Christians and say, our hope isn't just, we're going to go to heaven. It's so much bigger. It's cosmic. It involves you and me and all who have died. And we can look into darkness and say, it hurts and it's awful and I hate it, but there's something beyond it. First Thessalonians says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him all who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Oh, God's not going to send a messenger to make things right. He's going to step in and just crush evil. Yes! Isn't that cool? Oh, man, I'm so excited about that day. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Revelation 21, which we read at the beginning, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is exactly what Eden was supposed to be, but now it's permanent. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Bible doesn't actually go into whether or not animals are in heaven. But this gives me hope. Because God's not just going to kill death for humans. Death for all cosmos is going to be undone. The final vision is of God's cosmic transformation where everything will be put to rights in our hearts, in the hearts of our neighbors, and in the earth in which we dwell. Romans 8 says, In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's where we are right now. We wait. 
our present sufferings will give way to future glory. Now, there are some people I know growing up. I've grown up in Christianity my entire life. I actually don't know a day in which I didn't go to church. But many of my friends, since my growing up years, have left the faith. And uh, fortunately, they still like me, so we talk about these things. And so when we get to talking about the problem of evil, the questions come up as you encounter them too. Why doesn't God make it stop? How does a loving God not intervene in a world with such profound and imminent suffering? When, when the innocent cry out for protection, why doesn't God answer or seem to answer quickly every time? Why must we hear yet another story of this person or that person doing wrong and evil in the world? I don't know the answers fully to any of those things, but I can tell you how I respond to them now. I've seen a lot of crazy, horrible things. I've lost sleep over this. It's the resurrection. Literally is the reason I'm still a, a believer. It's the promise that one day all of this darkness will be made undone. That no matter how much suffering will endure, he'll make the bad things come undone. They will become untrue suddenly. Because God will triumphantly beautifully, masterfully, under his lordship, bring all creation to rights. I don't know if you've ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible. I'm an adult, but I love this thing. It's written for children, but let me tell you one part, which I, I don't know, I may have shed some weakness juice, may have, may have cried a little tears a few, trying to read to my children and suddenly like sobbing. This is what the Jesus Storybook Bible says about the passage in Revelation 21 and the glorious hope that we have. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they are gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. Everything sad will come untrue. Because even though we groan now, and even though creation groans, God has set a day in which he will make all things new. I hope for that day, and I wait for it. Do you wait for it too? If you do, know that God will keep his promises. We know that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's our proof that he'll keep his promises to take us and the home we live in and make it all brand new. Let's pray. Lord God of glory, I thank you and I praise you for the unbelievable hope that you've given us. You have given us great and precious promises. Father, we have heard so many times in our lives about hardship, war, calamity, famine, even this past couple years where our sense of safety was destroyed by a virus that no one could see but everyone could get. I pray, Lord, oh, come quickly. I'm tired of watching my friends suffer. I'm tired of watching my children suffer, my wife, my family I'm tired of suffering. 
But we look to you. Jesus, you rose, we were raised from the dead by the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have sealed our resurrection in yours. So I lift up my brothers and sisters here that are dear and precious before you. And you know the carrying, the burdens they carry. You know the places in which their hearts groan. You know how this past week, whatever news they may have heard and whatever trouble they may have experienced, you know it all. You know what it's like to have watched the generations say goodbye to those who have died. You know what it's like to watch disease take a person who was healthy and make them into something other. You know what it's like to watch marriages be corrupted by sin, pride, and anger. It's been this way since the start. And I pray that we would repent of it now. Lord, we wait for you. You know the day and the hour you'll return. So we hold on and we hold on tight. Hold on to us when we can't hold on any longer. When our world feels so overwhelming that we don't understand if our hope is real or not. When we're delusioned by the things that we see and we feel somehow that you've forgotten to keep your promises. We trust that you haven't. We thank you that the resurrection of Christ proves that you haven't forgotten. And now, Lord, set us into this hope with full assurance that you will come again and make all things brand new. We lay ourselves before you in hope. In your name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.